Blog Talk Radio. The B I B L E that's the book for me. The B I B L E that's the book for me. The B I B L E that's the book for me. The B I B L E The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we'd like to send you a free booklet by John called Is It Real? It's all about helping you answer the vital question Is my salvation the real thing? Request your free booklet by writing to real at gty.org. That's real at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through June of 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, 
Here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. As we prepare to share in the table of our Lord, we turn to a subject in the Word of God that is of great importance to me and to us. Obviously, everything in Christian faith centers on the cross of Jesus Christ, His sacrifice for sin. And it draws us into many considerations, many doctrinal areas, many realms, many issues. The matter that I want to bring before you this morning as we think about the cross of Christ and His sacrifice for us is the matter of repentance. Repentance. There seems to be today a great indifference toward the matter of repentance. In some cases, there is even a hostility toward the issue of repentance. It is not fashionable to preach a gospel that demands that men and women turn from sin. That kind of preaching is very rare today and very often frowned upon. There is both indifference and hostility toward repentance, even though it is a centerpiece of the Christian gospel. But to put it in perspective, that's not anything new. This disinterest, this assault on the doctrine of repentance started long ago. In fact, we can go back, for example, to the year 1937. 1937, some 60 years ago. And in 1937, there was a formidable preacher in America by the name of Dr. Harry A. Ironside. Some of you will remember him. He was a prolific Bible preacher and writer. In 1937, Ironside noted that the biblical doctrine of repentance was being diluted. It was being diluted on purpose by those who wished to preach the gospel but exclude from the gospel the doctrine of repentance. Ironside, in response to this, wrote a book called Except You Repent. And in it he said this, The doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and fundamentally sound circles today. Further, he said, there are professed preachers of grace who, like the antinomians of old, decry the necessity of repentance lest it seem to invalidate the freedoms of grace." End quote. Ironsides was recognizing in his day the dangers of an incipient, easy believism. He said there were preachers of grace, and certainly grace is a good subject to preach, who were like antinomians. That's a word that refers to people who have a low regard for the law of God. They were like antinomians of old, and they thought that if you preach repentance, you're somehow invalidating the freedoms of grace. And so, for the sake of grace, in the preservation of grace, they eliminated repentance, believing it to be an intrusion. Since that time, in the 30s until this very day, there has been a continual effort to strip the gospel of repentance. In the pragmatic movement, which is inimitable to our times in the 80s and the 90s, this has also occurred because too much preaching about sin and repentance tends to irritate people and drive them away from responding to the gospel. And so 
repentance has fallen on hard times in spite of the fact that it is at the very core of our Christian faith and at the very core of our salvation personally. In fact, if you go to the beginning of the New Testament and start reading, you read a few chapters and you arrive at the first preacher, or maybe better, the last preacher of the Old Testament, the first preacher in the New, John the Baptist. And he has a simple message. It goes like this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the one word that dominated John's preaching. And when the Jews came to see him, he preached repentance and said, bring forth fruit unto repentance. He was followed by the one he told the people was coming, the Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus' message was the same as John's. Jesus came and preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called sinners to repentance. And as you read through Matthew and as you read through Mark and particularly as you read through Luke, you will find again and again and again the centerpiece of repentance brought to the fore in the preaching and the ministry of our Lord Jesus. And obviously, when we look at His life, we would say that He preached repentance. You come to the book of Acts and the day of Pentecost, the first great sermon in the book of Acts is preached and the first great call is made to sinners, and Peter says, repent, repent. Peter preached repentance until, as it were, he handed the baton to Paul. In the 14th chapter of Acts, there's a sweeping ministry of Paul that begins, and Paul, like Peter, preached repentance. You find it all through the book of Acts. Paul wrote the book of Romans in chapter 2, verse 4, talked about repentance. Wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, talked about repentance. It was the message not only of the Gospels and the message of the book of Acts and the message of Paul, it was also the message of Peter in his epistle, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For all to come to repentance. Repentance is a requirement. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 13, He said it twice, once in verse 3 and again in verse 5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Perish. Now, repentance, then, is a crucial element. We cannot understand the gospel. We cannot rightly believe the gospel. We certainly cannot proclaim the gospel unless we understand the matter of repentance. And the widespread diffidence toward repentance causes me to want to draw depend, uh, repentance, as it were, up out of the darkness a little bit and shine the light on it so that we can understand the centrality of it and the significance of it. When you go back in the history of the church, and I'll give you a little bit of a flow so that you know I'm standing in some fast company when I exalt the doctrine of repentance. When you go back in the history of the church, you find a great concern about the matter of repentance. It was clear, for example, in the second century, in the year 150, when a man named Clement lived, he wrote an epistle, a second of his epistles that he wrote. And 
In this epistle, he expressed his grave concern about the doctrine of repentance being at the center of the Christian gospel. Now, he was only about 50 years after the writing of the last New Testament book, which would have been the book of Revelation written in about 96. So 54 years later or so, Clement writes this, Let us not merely call him Lord, for that will not save us. For he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be saved, but he who does what is right. Thus, brothers, let us acknowledge him by our actions, by our actions. And that's exactly the issue. There must be something in the life that is dramatically different. It's not enough to say something. There must be a turning. There must be a change. He talks about the fact that there are two worlds and those two worlds are enemies of each other. This one world is adultery, corruption, avarice, and deceit, while the other world gives them up. We cannot then be friends of both. To get the one, we must give up the other. That really involves the essence of repentance. Repentance is a turning. It is a rejecting of one thing and an embracing of another. That is repentance. And they were concerned about it in the New Testament. They were concerned about it in the first century after the New Testament. The next stop we'll make in the history of the doctrine of repentance would be in the year 1517, a remarkable and notable year in Europe, particularly in Germany, because it was in the year 1517 that a priest, a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther, decided that the Roman church had it all wrong. He had discovered the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He wrote a thesis. In fact, he wrote 95 separate points that comprised the 95 thesis. And he went to the church at Wittenberg, and he nailed that thesis to the door for everyone to see. The first three things of the 95, the first three theses in the 95 thesis go like this. The very first three, number one, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ wrote Luther, in saying repent meant the whole life of the faithful to be an act of repentance. Luther was calling for a real understanding of repentance, not a superficial one, not a ceremonial one, but one where the whole life is turned in another direction. The second in his 95 Theses said this, This saying cannot be understood of the sacrament of penance. That is to say, true repentance is not an external sacrament, which is administered by the priesthood. So first Luther said, I'm calling you to a true life of repentance, and it is not a sacrament that is external and administered by priests. That was an all-out assault on the Roman system. Then came the third thesis. Yet he does not mean, wrote Luther, interior repentance only. Nay, interior repentance is void if it does not produce different kinds of mortifications of the flesh." End quote. That's how the Reformation began. The Reformation began with a call to repentance. A life of repentance not to be understood as taking external sacraments and not to be understood as some internal attitude that doesn't change the life dramatically. 
It was in the middle of the 17th century in the 1640s that we moved to another monumental moment the century after the Reformation began. And the great minds of the church got together to form what is known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. In the 17th century, they wrote that catechism. It was um, edited and updated through the years. A 1674 version of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question. Remember, a catechism is a series of questions and answers intended to lead someone through an appropriate and complete understanding of sound doctrine. And in those days, they catechized the children, they catechized everybody in this question-and-answer format. It comes from the Greek katecheo, which basically has to do with an interchange of discussion. The question is, what is repentance unto life? This is what they said in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Here's the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience, end quote. That is just a great statement. I don't know how one could improve on it, even though it is in excess of 300 years old. Let me read it again. Repentance unto life, that is unto eternal life, is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, that is, he understands truly his sin and he understands truly the gospel of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Further, said the Catechism, repentance unto life does chiefly consist in two things. One, in turning from sin and forsaking it. And two, in turning unto God. That's precisely what repentance is. It's turning from sin to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism then asked two further questions. What is the turning from sin which is part of true repentance? The answer comes, the turning from sin, which is a part of true repentance, consists in two things. One, in turning from all gross sins in regard of our course and conversation, that's your life and speech. Two, in a turning from all other sins in regard of our hearts and affections. So, said the Catechism, a true repentance consists in turning from external sins of conduct and turning from internal sins of affection and heart attitude. Then the question came, does such a truly, does such as truly repent of sin never return again unto the practice of the same sins which they have repented of? It's a good question, isn't it? Is this like a once-for-all thing, and once you've repented, you never go back? Here's the answer. Such as have truly repented of sin do never return unto the practice of it, so as to live in a course of sin as they did before. And where any after repentance do return unto a course of sin, 
It is evident a sign that their repentance was not of the right kind. Two, some have truly repented of their sins, although they may be overtaken and surprised by temptations so as to fall into the commission of the same sins which they have repented of, yet they do not lie in them, but get up again, and with bitter grief bewail them, and return again unto the Lord. It's a great definition. Great statement. Repentance, then, summarizing, consists chiefly of two things, turning from sin and forsaking it, and turning to God. We know that someone has truly done that because it shows up in their life, in their course and conversation on the outside, in their affections and in their heart on the inside. Do they ever sin the sins of which they have repented? Not as a constant course of life. If they do, then their repentance was not of the truest kind. But it is possible, as so well said, for some to have truly repented of their sins and still be overtaken and surprised by temptations so as to fall into the commission of the same sins which they have repented of, yet they do not lie in them but get up again and with bitter grief bewail them and return again unto the Lord. That's repentance. You can't preach the gospel without preaching that. There is no gospel without repentance. The great British Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote this, where mourning for offending God is lacking, where it's absent, there is no sign of any good will yet wrought in the heart toward God, nor of love to Him without which God will never accept the man. Great statement. If you don't see mourning for offending God, in the life of an individual, says Goodwin, there is no sign of any goodwill yet wrought in the heart toward God, nor of love to Him. Further, says Goodwin, else there is no hope of amendment. God will not pardon till He sees hopes of amendment. Until a man confess his sin and that with bitterness, it is a sign he loves it. While he hides it, spares it, and forsakes it not, it is sweet in his mouth, and therefore till he confess it and mourn for it, it is a sign it is not bitter to him, and so he will not forsake it. A man will never leave sin till he finds bitterness in it, and if so, then he will be in bitterness for it. And godly sorrow works repentance." End quote. So where you have true repentance, there is bitterness and there is sadness. There's not just the attitude, my life wasn't very fulfilled, but Jesus has helped me fulfill it. There isn't just the attitude, you know, I needed something else to make my marriage work, or I needed something else to take some fears and doubts away, to remove my anxieties, and Jesus solved all those problems for me. That is devoid of the heart repentance, the bitterness that should come to the true penitent, which is essential to the reality of salvation. Moving a few hundred years later, we come to the great preacher of London, Charles Spurgeon, and he said it as strongly as possible. Listen to what Spurgeon said from his pulpit about repentance. There must be a true and actual abandonment of sin and a turning unto righteousness in real act and deed in everyday life. 
Repentance, to be sure, must be entire. How many will say, Sir, I will renounce this sin and the other, but there are certain darling lusts which I must keep and hold? Oh, sirs, in God's name, let me tell you, it is not the giving up of one sin nor fifty sins, which is true repentance. It is the sole renunciation of every sin. Spurgeon says, if you harbor one of those accursed vipers in your heart and do give up every other, that one lust like one leak in a ship will sink your soul. Think it not sufficient to give up your outward vices. Fancy it not enough to cut off the more corrupt sins of your life. It is all or none which God demands. Repent, says He, and when He bids you repent, He means repent of all your sins. Otherwise, He can never accept that repentance as real and genuine. All sin must be given up or else you will never have Christ. All transgression must be renounced or else the gates of heaven must be barred against you. Let us remember then that for repentance to be sincere, it must be entire repentance. True repentance is a turning of the heart as well as of the life. It is the giving up of the whole soul to God to be His forever and ever. It is the renunciation of the sins of the heart as well as the crimes of the life." End quote. Now remember, this repentance is not something that you can do on your own. It is a grace that God grants. 2 Timothy 2.25 says God grants repentance. Acts 11.18, Peter said that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. It is the grace of repentance that God works in the heart that is the companion to belief. From His first message to His last Jesus Himself called sinners to repent. He called sinners to turn from their sins. It was more than just that they would change their mind about who He was. It was that they would turn from sin and follow Him. And then when He gave the Great Commission, we're familiar with Matthew's account of the Great Commission about going into all the world and uh, baptizing and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. We may even be familiar with Mark's version, but it's Luke's version of the the Great Commission that's important for us this morning, Luke 24, 47, Jesus said, Repentance should be preached. When you go, preach repentance. Preach repentance. Call on sinners to turn from their sins. Religion without repentance is meaningless. In Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, God said, I delight in obedience or loyalty rather than sacrifice. I don't want your external religion. I want the loyalty of your heart. I want you to turn from being loyal and obedient to Satan and sin to being loyal and obedient to me. There was a Pharisee in the 18th chapter of Luke, and he, he went into the temple to pray. And you remember the story. He was really impressed with himself. He was a believer. He believed in the true God, the God of Israel, the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He believed in the God who had led Israel out of the land of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. He believed in the God who had miraculously parted the Red Sea and fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. He believed in the God who had given them access to conquer the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. He believed in the true and living God. He believed in the God who was the author of the Old Testament. He also was a somewhat devout man. He prayed uh, regularly in the appropriate place. He gave tithes, which meant he was generous toward God. He fulfilled all the ceremonies that belief would call him to fulfill. But Jesus told the story about the man 
And that the man went home without ever being justified. He was not saved. He was not a redeemed man. He was not a saved man. He was not a forgiven man. He was therefore a hell-bound man. And the missing ingredient in his life was repentance. Even though he had faith, he had no repentance to partner with the faith. On the other hand, there was another man there who also had faith. He believed in the true and living God. He believed in the Word of the true and living God. He believed in the law of the true and living God, and he knew he had violated it. And he was the publican, the tax collector, the outcast, and he beats his breast and he won't even look up, and he pounds away on his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, what? A sinner. And Jesus said that man went home forgiven because there was penitence in his heart. There was the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. He came to Jesus. He believed enough in Jesus to say, uh, how do I have eternal life? He never got eternal life because when Jesus wanted to talk about sin and penitence, He wouldn't admit to any sin, and so He was left in His hell-bound condition. Repentance is absolutely at the very heart of the Christian gospel. Now, for just a few moments, let me talk about repentance by way of a biblical understanding. Just several things to think about. Number one, repentance is an element within saving faith. I tried to say these things in a brief and concise way that it captures the idea. It is an element within saving faith. It is not the same as believing. There are people today who would want to take repentance and make it nothing more than a synonym for believing. They, they think it means nothing more than just changing your mind about who Jesus is and now believing that He's God. But repentance is not just another word for faith. It's not just another word for believing. But it is inseparable from believing. It isn't the same as, but it is inseparable from. They go together, as the theologian Louis Burkhoff said, as complementary parts of the same process. They're back-to-back -back like two sides of a coin. They are inseparable, but they are required for true salvation. What does repentance mean? What... What is it? It is as an element of saving faith best understood to be a turning. The verb used, it's also a noun form, <clears throat> metanoia or metanaeo in the verb form, comes from two words, naeo, which means to understand, and meta, which means after. So it's like an after understanding or an afterthought. It literally means to have an afterthought and be thinking one way and change your thought. That's, that would be the simplistic meaning of the components of the word. However, the biblical meaning is much beyond an afterthought. Even secularly, it came to mean a turning, a transition, a stopping and going in the opposite direction. And from a biblical standpoint, it always appears as a specific turning from sin toward God. Turning from sin toward God. It is a changing of your mind about your life, about your sin. It always speaks of a change of purpose, a change of direction, specifically connected with a turning from sin toward God, from sin toward righteousness. In the sense that Jesus used it, He was calling for a repudiation of the old sinful life and a turning to God for a new and righteous life. In 1 Thessalonians, there is a very simple and straightforward expression of repentance in chapter 1, verse 9 where Paul commends the Thessalonians as true believers because they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turned to God, which meant they turned from the evils of idols to serve God. That's repentance. It's turning from sin to God. It is an essential element 
of saving faith, though it is not the faith itself, it is an inseparable component in saving faith. Secondly, it is a redirection of the will. The best way to understand it, I think, now that you know it is an element of saving faith, is to see it as a redirection of the will. Faith apprehends something as true. Repentance redirects the will. Where the will has hankered after sin, where the will has pursued lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, where the will has been driven toward those things that fulfill the flesh, those things that allure in the world, where there is real repentance associated with saving faith, the will is completely redirected. It is not just being sad about your sin. It's not just feeling sorry that you got caught. There is in genuine repentance remorse. There is in genuine repentance a bitterness and a sorrow and a hatred of sin. But there is also a redirection of the human will. That is to say, you could be very sorry about your sin, very sad about your sin, feel awful about your sin, and just sort of wallow in that. That does not constitute repentance. Repentance is when the will is redirected, and all of a sudden, the dominant choices and the purposeful choices of life are toward righteousness and virtue and what is good and holy, just and pure. That's repentance. It is an element of saving faith in that it is a sorrow over sin. It is also a redirection of the will in that that sorrow turns into the longing to make choices toward righteousness. So that I've always said through the years, it's not always the perfection of our lives that demonstrates our Christianity. That would be hard for us to do because we're not perfect, but it is the direction. It's what you long for. It's what you hanker for. It's what pleases you. It's what your will is driven toward that identifies you as having been changed, saved. Now, at this point, again, I want to say this is a work of God. This is a grace work that God does in the heart. Along with bringing saving faith, He produces this kind of repentance which is associated with saving faith and which is a redirection of the otherwise dead and impotent human will. Only God can create this redirection. That's why Acts 11.18 and 2 Timothy 2.25 says God grants repentance. Some people say, well, you know, if you tell sinners to repent, if you preach repentance, you're asking them to do something they can't do. And so they say, you know, are you asking people to to do some pre-salvation work to get their life in order so that God will save them? Is this call to repentance a call to people to stop sinning on the spot, and if you'll just stop sinning and start doing what's right, God will save you, not on your life? Who could do that? Can the leper change his spots? No. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Nobody's going to change that. No human. You can't do that. Repentance is not a pre-salvation attempt to set your life in order. I was talking to a doctor one time who said, you know, I'm going to come to Christ as soon as I get my life straightened out. I said, I got a better idea. You'll never do that. Why don't we just give it to him and let him straighten it out? Repentance is a component of saving faith 
which, like saving faith, is a great, gracious work of God. But we call on sinners to repent because that work is not apart from their response. We call on them to believe. We call on them to repent because that's what the Bible tells us to do. We give invitations to sinners to turn their back on their sin and to embrace Christ with wholehearted devotion. In his excellent little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, Jim Packer wrote this, quote, The repentance that Christ requires of His people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit to the claims which He may make on their lives, end quote. Repentance says, I'm so sick of my sin, I'm so weary of my sin, I'm so tired of my sin and its consequences that I embrace Christ at any cost. Jesus said it's losing your life to find it, didn't He? It's losing your life to find it. Now, this redirection of the will has some components. First of all, it's intellectual. It is intellectual. It begins with a recognition, and I want you to get this because it's very important. It begins with a recognition of sin as an affront to God. You're not going to get redirected until you understand the seriousness of sin. And by that I don't mean just that sin messes up your life and goofs up your, your life and creates complications in this world and causes stress and anxiety and all that, although it does do that. You really will come to a true repentance when you understand more than the personal consequence of sin when you understand the divine consequence of sin. When you understand that you are an affront to a holy God and there are immense consequence to that affrontery. That's what has to be contained and understood and proclaimed in the gospel. That a sinner is not just messing up his own life and Jesus can fix it, but a sinner has put himself in enmity with the holy God and the consequences are frightening and terrifying. I think this is very important in the rearing of children. You have not satisfied the responsibilities of parenthood when you've made your child submit to you. When you put so much fear in your child that your child is afraid to violate you, that is not where, that is not the end of parenting. You have parented your child appropriately when your child lives with the fear of God. Not you. You're an intermediary with the responsibility of teaching your child to fear God. I don't want my children to just grow up and fear me because what are they going to do when I'm not there? That's easy to do. All you have to do is whack them around and they're going to have a normal fear of you. All you have to do is make the consequences to their misdeeds severe enough and they'll have a normal fear of you. That's a far cry from them living with a heart attitude of fearing God. The most important thing you can teach your child is that when they do what is wrong, it doesn't just irritate mommy. It doesn't just antagonize daddy. It doesn't just mess with the order of the family. What they're doing is putting themselves in a very, very difficult position before a holy God who deals out consequence for violations against His holy law. I didn't want to raise my children to fear being chastened by their father. That was incidental. I wanted to raise my children to fear being chastened by their God. Because I'm not always around, but He is. 
And the consequence of violating God are far greater, infinitely greater, than any violation on the human level. I think at the very earliest age when you deal with your children, you need to teach them this. They need to understand that sin is an offense against a holy God so that you're preparing their heart for penitence. One of the reasons that I'm reluctant to accept the confession of, of belief of a, of a very young child, four or five, six-year-old child, who says, yes, I love Jesus, He died for me, and I want Him to live in my heart, and so forth and so forth, is because I doubt whether that child, it's not that the child would be in every case incapable of it, but I doubt whether that child has any real understanding of the divine implications of their sin. Because we don't tend to deal with that as we ought to deal with it. It's critical that our children grow up with a fear of God. That's what, that's what leads to true repentance. When I begin to understand intellectually that my sin is my sin and it is an affront to a holy God and that I am personally and singularly responsible for my guilt. Don't blame anybody. No one is to blame but you. When I come to the recognition that I am a sinner and that that has immense and eternal consequences before holy God, and I want to avoid those consequences, and I want blessing for cursing, then I'm intellectually prepared for repentance. Then it becomes emotional. It goes from being intellectual to emotional. It produces sorrow and shame, and then that begins to move the will. Then it becomes volitional. It finally brings about a turning as God works it in the heart, a willingness, not only a willingness, but I believe a determination to abandon stubborn patterns of sinful disobedience and pursue the will of God, pursue the will of Christ. And as such, it produces a, a transformed life. Coming up to the modern time in history, we read from Martin Lloyd-Jones, Repentance means that you realize you're guilty, vile, a sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and punishment of God, that you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. Your nearest and dearest, and the whole world may call you a fool or say you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. It launches you into a new disposition and a new life. And it's possible because of the cross, isn't it? Join me in prayer. Father, as we come now to this table, we realize that repentance is not something we just did when we were saved, but it's an ongoing reality in our lives. As the Catechism says, there are times when we are tempted, we are surprised, and we fall back into the very patterns that sinned we had repented of, but we hate those patterns, and we rise again and return to You. Lord, we need to come to Your table because we need to confess our sins. We need to admit that we've stumbled and fallen. We've been surprised by temptations in their subtleties, and sometimes in their blatant form. We've stumbled and fallen, and we need Your cleansing. Oh, God, how we thank You that You've 
build into us a penitent heart that has caused us to turn from sin to righteousness, to turn from Satan to Christ, to turn from darkness to light, from death to life. Thank You for working that work in our hearts through the cross, through faith in the crucified Christ, that that repentance becomes a transforming repentance. And we're made into new creations and old things pass away and everything is new. I pray for the repentance of those who have not yet truly repented. I pray that if there are sinners here who, who have not repented, who have not abandoned everything and willingly forsaken all for Christ, that they would do that. I pray for Christians who have stumbled and fallen back into sin, that even now they would confess and be cleansed. I pray for all of us to be able to preach repentance in a way that sinners can hear and understand knowing that if they will not repent, they cannot be saved. Oh, God, how we thank You that You receive repentant sinners through the sacrifice of Your Son who died for the repenters. And when we come to You in repentant faith and believe in Christ, You save us. You, you forgive all our sins because He died in our place. Bless us now as we contemplate this great reality of the cross. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
are forgiven now We can pray to our Father in heaven above We can come to our God at any time of the day And He'll receive us so great His love He wants us to talk to Him with a sincere heart And rejoice when we're really glad And when it seems like things are falling apart We can pray when we're feeling sad And when we do bad things, we confess our sins We can pray all alone or with our friends Because of Jesus, we can cast all our cares on God Because He's always there, we can pray We pray, we pray, cause we need God Provable Assumptions. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's Word and the Gospel. Are Earth's rocks millions of years old? Well, radiometric dating is often given as proof, but there's a lot of assumptions behind this. Here's how radiometric decay works. One element decays into a new element. Scientists can measure the rate at which this takes place, and they believe this determines the ages of the rocks. It seems simple. But the whole process of radiometric dating is based on unprovable assumptions. We must assume we know the original number of the original element, that there's been no contamination, and that the decay rate hasn't even changed. So no, radiometric dating doesn't prove long ages. The Earth is young, just as the Bible teaches. Subscribe to receive free email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. We kick it old school. 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 Get old school. Come on, come on, don't miss the latest craze. Hit it for a minute, then it's on to the next phase. Easy come, easy go, the marketers will hack it. The only change that comes winds up in a pocket. 
like a moldy piece of bread. We act as if the holy word of God is all but dead. All we need to know is right there on the pages. Why are we obsessed with who the guy on stage is? that built a full-size Noah's Ark attraction. Radiometric dating is not proof of long ages. Here's what I mean. Radiometric dating measures the decay of one element, the parent, into a new element, the daughter. Now the rate of this decay and the number of daughter atoms found in rocks is used to come up with a date for the rocks. Now, there's three big unprovable assumptions behind this. Let's look at the first one that we can know the conditions when the rock was formed. But in most cases, no one was there to observe the rock forming. Scientists just assume they can know the original number of parent atoms based on the current number of parent and daughter atoms. But that's an unprovable assumption. Discover more about radiometric dating and the real age of the Earth when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Yes, you'll get answers to your questions at AnswersRadio.com. To praise the one who has the crown In today's lessons, we'll talk about the Holy Bible The most important book we all need for survival The Bible is God's message for this world It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl And that message is that if we turn to Christ And place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school Like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David 
David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel, where all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Where should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful most high. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. The dates can't be trusted. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. All this week we're looking at a so-called proof for long ages, radiometric dating, but it's built on unprovable assumptions. For example, this process assumes there hasn't been any contamination of the rocks. So these scientists have to assume that over millions of years, natural processes haven't added or removed any of the parent or daughter atoms used for dating. But that's a bad assumption. For example, 50-year-old lava flows in New Zealand gave radiometric ages ranging from 100 million years to nearly 4 billion years. They can't be trusted. The Earth is young. Discover more about creation, evolution, science, and the Bible when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. He made 
did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees, from lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God they are praising. The difference is cry out, God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sort. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as the gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. We see what God's love is about There's no type of person that Jesus left out Because Jesus died and rose from the grave All those who trust in the Lord will be saved In the book of Revelation, chapter number 7 The church from all times is gathered in heaven Each tribe and people, language and nation All thanking God for the gift of salvation Together, forever, with saints of all kinds Through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine This is exactly what God has designed When God made me and you, let's go Go. Faster rates? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. This week we're looking at the unprovable assumptions behind radiometric dating. You see, to trust it, scientists must assume the rate of decay is virtually unchanging. But if it was different in the past, the dates just can't be trusted. And there's evidence the decay rate was much faster in the past. In New Mexico, the radioactive decay of crystals in uranium gave a radiometric age of one and a half billion years. Now, the decaying uranium also produced helium. 
yet only 6,000 years worth of helium has leaked out. So the one and a half billion year age can't be right. The decay rate, it was much faster in the past. Find resources to help you build a more biblical worldview when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. And this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change I was thinking just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance, even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance that existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan, we changed many times in one lifespan, I've changed even since this song began, Lord I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last, you are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past, as long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed Lord. As long ago, as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same, immutable, beautiful, you never change, never About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of his great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace it will remain. Because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, 
Can we know the Earth's age? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Global Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. All this week, we've seen there are layers of unprovable assumptions behind dating rocks, and these wrong assumptions result in wrong dates. Now, many secular scientists refuse to recognize this because they reject both creation and Noah's flood, which would both impact radiometric dates. It's these events that help us make sense of the problems in radiometric dating. Now, if the rocks don't give us the age of the Earth, can we truly know it? Well, yes. God gave us the true history of the universe in His Word. Starting with the Bible's eyewitness account of history, we know the Earth is only about 6,000 years old. Plan your visit to the life-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free in 2021. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com.
Jesus Storybook Bible is a very popular book for teaching kids about the Bible. It was written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, no relation to Martin Lloyd-Jones. But do not think this is a Bible. Jones writes in her words, not God's word. And her words are dripping with sentimentalism, not scripture. For example, when God created man and woman, the book says, Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. In her version of the Bible, Joan seems to think that sin is forgetting that God loves you. She makes no mention of judgment and therefore no gospel. Without discernment, the Jesus Storybook Bible could lead to a wrong understanding of what the true Bible says. Furthermore, Sally Lloyd-Jones has included homosexuality in her children's books. She proudly admitted that in her book, Goldfish on Vacation, she depicted a family with two homosexual men. This is not a woman who is contrite in spirit and trembles at God's word, Isaiah 66.2. So how should you teach your children the Bible? Well, open the Bible and read it to them. Then explain to them what you read. You'll need to do your own study, maybe plan out lessons, pick verses for your kids to memorize. You don't need a published Bible study. Just use your Bible. As it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, even kids, when we understand the text. Billie Eilish is a very popular bad girl singer who recently shocked the world by saying that pornography destroyed her mind. As a woman, I think porn is a disgrace, and I used to watch a lot of porn, to be honest. I started watching porn when I was like 11. I I didn't understand why it was a a bad thing. I think it really destroyed my brain, and um, I feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn. I think that I have night terrors slash just nightmares because of it. I think that's how they started because I would just watch abusive, you know, BDSM and I couldn't watch anything else like unless it was violent. I like didn't think it was attractive and I was a virgin. I had never done anything. I am I'm so angry that porn is so loved and I'm so angry at myself for, for thinking that it was okay. And Billie Eilish is trying to warn about the dangers of pornography. She's trying to fight a hurricane with a fly swat. Look at what she's up against. Three major benefits of porn that no one talks about. Six reasons why your porn habit might actually... People are all over the place with porn. There's, you know, a lot of theories and studies saying porn is addictive, it's bad for you. Who watches porn? 90% of 15 to 25-year-old boys have admitted to uh, using pornography. Only 40% of 18 to 34-year-olds find it morally acceptable. What else is the 60% thinking? To me, the idea that porn is morally unacceptable, I find unfathomable. Like, what, what are you, from 1855? Who thinks that? Sin can be very pleasurable. And whether or not it's destructive in nature isn't the real issue. Think of when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. It was no big deal until Nathan came out, told him a story about a man who stole another man's lamb, and then pointed to him and said, you are the man. So what did David say about what he had done? Do you say, oh, it was a bad choice, I shouldn't have done it? No. Read Psalm 51, and it tells us exactly what he said. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your love and kindness, 
according to the multitude of the tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. And then he says this, against you and you only have I sinned and done the evil in your sight. That's how we should approach God when we know we have sinned. We don't come to him and say, oh God, I messed up my life. Would you please help me put it back together? If you want God's attention, approach him with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. What does that mean? Well, imagine a judge talking to a criminal and saying, your drunk driving resulted in the death of an innocent person. Have you anything to say before I pass sentence? And the criminal says back to the judge, judge, you're right. I made a bad decision. I could have made a better decision for myself. This whole thing has really messed up my life. That's not contrition. It's cold, it's hard, and it's selfish. The judge wants to see a tear in the eye. He wants to see an admittance that he's done wrong, and that's the path that will lead him to mercy. And the Bible says godly sorrow works repentance. I remember my conversion back in 1972. I read where Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. I remember thinking, oh, no, not that I'd sinned against God, but the fact was that God was putting his finger on the sin that gave me great pleasure. I had an instant pleasure, and like every red-blooded man, I lusted after women. And the thing that produced a godly sorrow was seeing the cost of my redemption. Let me tell you a quick little story. A father once said to his son, Son, see that vase? It's very expensive. Don't open that glass case. I don't want you touching it. Okay? Very expensive. Kid says, Okay, Dad goes to work. Kid thinks, Oh, I wonder if it really is expensive. I've seen one in the supermarket that's identical. It's only $5 worth. So he opens the glass case, gets it out, looks at it. It's just the same. Suddenly, his father's coming out in the driveway in his car. He panics. He goes to put it in the glass case. It hits the top of the glass and smashes to a thousand pieces. And his dad walks in. He says, son, what have you done? The son says, okay, dad, I, I smashed it, but I can get another one at the supermarket for $5. The dad looks him soberly in the eyes and says, son, that was no cheap imitation vase. It was an antique worth $50,000. The father said, okay, son. It's going to cost me everything I've got, but I'll buy a new one myself. Tears suddenly welled in the child's eyes. He fell into his father's arms crying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What was it that produced contrition? It was the knowledge of what it would cost the father to make things right. And you and I know that we've sinned against God. We've broken the commandments, but it's no big deal. Who doesn't lie? Who doesn't steal? You know, it's no big deal. We can fix things up. But it's the cost of redemption that produces contrition. What did it cost God? The blood of the Son. God became a human being. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Want to see what the cost is? Look to the battered and bruised body of the Son of God. See the blood stream from his wounds. Hear him cry in anguish of soul, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the fury of a holy God fell upon him so that you and I could be made right with the Father. That should produce contrition. Again, watching pornography may be detrimental to some, as it was to Billy Eilish. But to millions, it's not at all detrimental. It gives them great pleasure, but it will lead them to hell. Remember Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Don't leave it lying there. We can put it back in. He said, cast it from you, for it's better to enter heaven without an eye than go to hell with both your eyes, where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. 
Facebook? I'll be like two months, two months ago. And what about you? About like three days ago. What do you think God thinks of pornography? Do you think he's okay with it? No. Definitely not. And what do you think? Do you think he's okay with it? Mm-hmm. I don't think so either. Do you think pornography is addictive? Yes, I do. But you can't stop once you start, isn't that right? You keep yeah, going I, back to it. Ever since that first time you watched it, you just keep on, kept on coming back. I remember the first time I watched it, it was like, out of middle school. So are you going to make it to heaven? I wouldn't say I'm a good person now, but I'm getting there. Are you going to make it to heaven? Are you a good person? Uh, Yeah. And what standard do you judge yourself by to know if you're good? Um, Just staying, sticking to yourself, staying true to yourself. What about the Ten Commandments? Are they a good standard to go yeah, by? Those, those are actually really good. So I'm going to apply them to you. And you can judge yourself to see if you're a good person. I'm going to do the same to you. Can you be honest with me? How many lies have you told in your life? Many, many. And what about you? Multiple. So what do you call someone who tells lies? Liar. A liar. So what are you? <laughs> a liar, I guess, but... Now, do you still think you're a good person? Yeah. Oh, have you ever stolen something? Yeah. What about you? Yeah. What do you call someone who steals things? A thief. So what are you? Thief. No, you're a lying thief. Now, do you still think you're a good? You still think you're a good person? Mhm. Yeah. Do you think you're a good person? Uh, no. Yeah. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Yeah. Have you? Yeah. Do you love your mum? I love my mum. Would you ever use her name as a, a cuss word? Instead of saying sh, you'd use her name in its place. No. Why not? Because that's my mom. That was my creator. Yeah, you, you, you respect her. Yeah, I have that much respect for her. But you don't respect the God that gave you a mother and gave you life. You abused his name in place of that filth word, which is called blasphemy. So serious in the Old Testament, it's punishable by death. You still think you're a good person? Yeah, because I, I believe everyone makes mistakes, and that's the only way we can learn. Okay, so you're learning by using God's name as a cuss word. What are you learning? Uh... Uh, okay, it's their mistakes. Now, Jesus said if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Did you know that? I do know that. And you've looked at women with lust. And I've, did, I've done that. Have you had sex before marriage? Yes. Ivan, so you've looked at women with lust. Have you had sex before marriage? Yes. Okay, now here's the summation. This is for you. It's not for me. I'm not judging you. You've told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating, adulterate heart. You're self-righteous. That means you're saying you're a good person when it's obvious you're not. You're like the rest of us. So here's the big question. This is where we're going with this. If God judges you by the Ten Commandments, which looked at four, on Judgment Day, you're going to be innocent or guilty? Guilty. Heaven or hell? Hell, yeah. Hell, I guess. What about you? Where are you going if you die today? I die today. I'd be going to hell. Does that concern you? Yeah. What about you? Does it concern you? Yeah. And every time we sin, we still are this way. Have you ever seen those LA freeway chases where the police are chasing a car and he goes through a stop sign and there's a commentator in the helicopter and says, oh, he's just broken the law again. He's making it worse. Oh, yeah. yeah. So every time you sin, you're making it worse for yourself. Every time you look with lust or lie or steal, and the Bible says all lions is their part in the lake of fire. Do you know what God did for guilty sinners so he wouldn't have to go to hell? What would he do? I don't know. You don't know? Do you know what God did for guilty sinners so he wouldn't have to go to hell? 
Oh, he died on the cross for us. Yeah, he died on the cross for us. Did you know that? Oh no, I didn't. I knew he died on the cross for us. I just, I didn't know that was. Yeah. Didn't know it was relevant to you. You and I broke God's law, the Ten Commandments, when Jesus paid the fine. Do you remember his last words on the cross just before he dismissed this group? He said three very deep words. Do you know what they were? No, I don't. He said, it is finished. In other words, the debt has been paid. We broke God's law. Jesus paid the fine. Because if you're in court and someone pays your fine, a judge can let you go. He can say, this beating fine is being paid by someone else. You're out of here even though you're guilty. And you do that which is illegal. And even though you and I are guilty before God, worthy of the death sentence and damnation, God can dismiss our case. He can let us live forever. He can take the death sentence off us because Jesus paid the fine. We can walk out of the courtroom on Judgment Day. Is this making sense? Yeah, it's making sense. And then he rose from the dead and defeated death. And guys, if you'll simply repent of your sins, let go of them. Say, God, forgive me. Create a clean heart in me. And then you trust in Christ. Trust in the Savior. God promises and he cannot lie because he's without sin. He'll grant you everlasting life as a free gift. Do you hear that? Free gift of God if you, if you just let go of your sins. And there's a problem with letting go of our sins, turning from them, repenting of them, is that we love them. There's incredible pleasure in pornography. There's incredible pleasure in fornication, but it'll be the death of you. It'll be like that moth keeps going back to the flame and a dead moth at the base of the flame say, man, when's the moth going to turn? Anyway, you're going to turn from sin is if God helps you to do it. That's what the Bible says he'll do. He'll create a clean heart in you that longs to do that which is right. That's a miracle for sin-loving sinners, where he takes you and makes you a brand new person, so you want to please the God that gave you life, and you want to do that which is right. That's a miracle. It's called the new birth, and the moment that it happens to you, you'll pass from death to life, and you'll have a desire to do what pleases God rather than what pleases your own sinful heart. Is this making sense? Yeah, it is. Making sense to you? Yeah. You're going to think about what we talked about? Yeah. You're going to think about it? Think about it right now. You're going to think about it with a sense of urgency? Yeah. You have a Bible at home? I have a Bible when I graduated. Uh, I'm interested. So, guys, when you leave here, don't just think about it with a casual. No, it was interesting. Think about it as though your life depends on it, because it does. Will you do that for me? Think about it with a seriousness? Yeah. Do you have a Bible at home? I give you guys a gift. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the Gospel of John that you really love. Can I give it to you? Yeah. Let me give it. Would you do me a favor? Would you open that up? And there's a couple of, yeah, a couple of bundles and hundreds of bills in there. Did you hear what we were talking about? Are you going to think about what we talked about? Well, that's great. That's the four gospels, okay? Do you think you'll read it? Okay. Thank you. Hey, thanks, guys. Do you have a question? I have one question. Do you know who published this? Are you partnered with them in any way? Yeah, I published it. Why did you choose this cover? Um, because it gets attention. And if you read the... If you read, are you with me on that? Yeah. If you read it, it says this little book is worth more than all the money in the world because it tells you how to find everlasting life. So that's why we made it like a bundle of money because that's the way to get people's attention. Don't forget to subscribe and click on the notification bell and make sure you don't miss the Living Waters podcast. The Evidence Study Bible will give you everything you've ever wanted to know about subjects such as the theory of evolution as well as valuable information about cults and different religions, atheism, and biblical archaeology. 
It also contains hundreds of quality quotes, fascinating articles, amazing scientific facts in the Bible, and so much more. It even includes answers to 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith. The Evidence Study Bible will thoroughly enrich your trust in God and in His precious Word. Get yours at livingwaters.com. Approaching a stranger is a little bit scary for most of us. That's why we've produced the starter kit. It contains four of our most popular gospel tracks. This is 101 of the world's funniest one-liners. These really are funny, and the gospel is hidden way inside. It's so easy to give out. You simply say, this is 101 of the world's funniest one-liners. It'll cheer up your day. This is a good person test. It's exactly what I say to people in comic form. And who can resist a comment? This is the Ten Commandments coin with a gospel on the back. I tossed a handful to teenagers once on a sidewalk and watched them fight over it. It's a great gift to give to anyone. And of course, our ever-popular million-dollar bill. Just say, did you get your million? And watch people's faces light up. There's a total of 350 tracks in the starter kit. Get yours today at livingwaters.com. That was great comfort with Living Waters. Like it says, livingwaters.com. And here is Todd Friel with Wretched. Welcome back to a Wretched. And not only are we hoping that you will send an email with a question, comment, conundrum, or snark to idea at wretched.org, but that you will attach your name, just like this email sent from Benjamin, dear Mr. Dr. Professor Master Friel. Okay, Benjamin, first of all, it's dear Mr. Mr. Dr. Professor Master Friel. Could you please get the title straight? He said, I recently heard your discussion on the maturity level of our activities regarding video games. Uh oh. What do you think about those who are professionals in these industries, video game designers, artists, programmers, marketers, etc.? Well, let's start at the end, recognizing a video game is not innately sinful, unless, of course, it's innately sinful. If there is a video game that is sexual, vulgar, a Christian should have no part in partaking or designing them. We can't work in an industry that is immediately sinful. How people use the product, that's on them, and you do not have a sullied conscience, I hope, if you work in an industry where people could abuse the work of your hands. Their sinning is their sinning. So if a video is not innately sinful by design and content, work in that industry. Use your skills because I don't think that it's a sin to either make or play an unsinful video game. My plea specifically is really two things. Watch the amount of time you spend and use your passion for video games as a marker for maturity. Let me explain that, Lucy. How much discretionary time we dedicate to fun is up to each individual. You decide for you, I decide for me. How much time are you going to spend on the couch? That is up to you, just like it is me. We just need to be careful that we're not abusing the privilege to just rest, have some downtime, have some fun with your thumbs, and play a video game. Use your dedication to that entertainment to determine, am I being a wise 
steward of my time. Second, ask yourself the question, am I growing in maturity or are these games stunting my growth? They don't have to, but they could. And usually these two subjects are connected. If you're spending oodles of time just playing a game, you're probably not growing, and that means you need to move away from the amount of time that you're spending with them or potentially either abandon them fully or manage them better than you currently are. Can a mature individual play a video game for fun? Why not? Just like you can play ping pong. Or, or, or you, you can play any sort. You can play hopscotch. I, okay, maybe not hopscotch. My point is do what you want to do, playing what you want to play. It's okay as long as you recognize I am not frittering away my time unnecessarily as a bad steward, and I am indeed growing. If either one of these tobacco, put, put down the control panel and just back away slowly, and then you can go to your computer and send an email to IDEA at wretched.org. Hello, Maria. This is... That was from Wretched, and then Wretched is that W-R-E-T-C-A-T-D dot O-R-G, Wretched dot org. That's where they have their, where they have their radio show and their TV show. So check us out. And I got that clip from Wretched on YouTube. So that's what I'm going to do for you. And this is called What? When We Understand the Text. First Timothy 2.4 says that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Yet Jesus said that not everyone will be saved. In Matthew, he said most will go to eternal punishment. Does this mean that God desires something he cannot accomplish? Well, in saying that God desires all people to be saved, all people cannot mean every person without exception. Otherwise, we have to believe universalism, and everyone eventually gets to heaven. That would mean Jesus is wrong. Or we have to believe there are circumstances out of God's control. That would mean God is not sovereign. Consider that the Greek word for all can mean all kinds. At the start of the passage, Paul said to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. This means all kinds of people, as God desires all kinds of people to be saved. We should be willing to pray for and share the gospel with anyone. Later in 1 Timothy 6.10, we read that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. This comes up many times in 1 Timothy, especially chapter 2. Consider verse 6, which says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. But Matthew 20, 28 says Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, not every single person. So again, this means all kinds. And indeed, Revelation 5, 9 says that Jesus has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. All kinds of people are saved when we understand the text. That is also known as when we understand the text. You see that www.utt.com and I got that from YouTube. Their channel is www.utt. So check it out. Thanks for listening to me with Cantrell here on Tricky Toll Radio. And I am going to do a song for you. I'm going to play one. <laughs> 
Romans and Corinthians. One and two. Revelations, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. One and two. First and second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Hebrew, James, first and second Peter, and John. One, two, three. And don't forget to do the Bible book. I praise you, Lord, forever. 
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.